Hey listeners, Rob Woodland here, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Happy New Year, everyone. We've got a different kind of holiday treat for you today, one I'm so glad that we've made the time to do. Rather than a classic episode, we've put together one of our favourite highlights from each episode of the show that has come out in 2023. That's 32 of our favourite ideas packed into one episode that's so bursting with substance it, it might be more than the human mind can safely handle. There's something for everyone here. Uh, we've got Ezra Klein on punctuated equilibrium, Tom Davidson on why AI takeoff might be shockingly fast, Johannes Akva on political action versus lifestyle changes, Hannah Ritchie on how buying environmentally friendly technology helps low-income countries, Brian Kaplan on rational irrationality on the part of voters, Jan Lacker on whether the release of ChatGPT increased or reduced AI extinction risk, Athena Actippus on why elephants get deadly cancers less often than humans, Anders Sandberg on the lifespan of civilizations, and Nita Farahani on hacking neural interfaces. Plus, of course, another 23 such gems. And they're in an order that our audio engineer, Simon Monsua, described as having an eight-dimensional Tetris-like rationale. Um, I don't know what the hell that means either, but I am curious to find out. If you like these highlights, note that we release 20-minute highlights reels for every new episode over on our sister feed, which is called ADK After Hours. So even if you're struggling to make time to listen to every single one, uh, you can always get some of the best bits of our episodes into your life. So without further ado, uh, I bring you every guest we had during 2023. Ajaya Kotra on what AI misalignment doesn't mean. So one big view that I think is actually a misconception of what people worried about AI misalignment have been saying, but I understand why people have this misconception, is people get really fixated on the idea of human values being really complicated and hard to specify and hard to understand. And they're worried about AI systems that are really good at things like physics and math and science, but basically just don't get what it is that humans want to see from them um, and like what human values really are. So an example that sometimes people bring out is you ask your AI system to cook dinner, your robot to cook dinner, and it doesn't understand that you wouldn't want it to cook the cat if you didn't have any ham in the fridge or something like that. So that kind of worry is something I'm that I think is quite overrated. I actually think that, in fact, having a basic understanding of human psychology and what humans would think is preferable and not preferable is not a harder problem than understanding physics or understanding how to code and so on. So I expect AIs will perfectly well understand what humans want from them. And so I actually don't expect to see mistakes that seem so egregious as cooking the family's cat for dinner. Because the AI systems will understand that humans are going to come home and look at what they did and then determine a reward like take some action based on that and we'll know that humans will be displeased if they come home to see that the cat has been killed and cooked. And in fact, a lot of my worries sort of stem from the opposite thing, stem from expecting AI systems to have a really good psychological model of humans. And so worrying that we'll end up in a world where they appear to be really getting a lot of subtle nuances and appear to be generalizing really well um, while sometimes being deliberately deceptive. Ezra Klein on punctuated equilibrium. You need ideas on the shelf, not in your drawer. Don't put them <laughs> in your drawer. They need to be on a shelf where other people can reach them to, to shift metaphor a little bit here. Yeah. You need ideas that are out there, right? So this is a, a governing model that in the political science literature is called punctuated equilibrium. Nothing happens and then all of a sudden it does. 
right? All of a sudden, the, the there's a puncture in the equilibrium and new things are possible. And, or as it's put more commonly, you never let a crisis go to waste. And when there is a crisis, people have to pick up the ideas that are around. And a couple things are important for that. One is that the ideas have to be around. Two is that they have to be coming from a source people trust, right? Or have reason to believe they should trust. And three, they have to have some relationship with that source. So what you want to be doing is building relationships with the kinds of people who are going to be, you know, making the decisions. What you want to be doing is building up your own credibility as a source on these issues. And what you want to be doing is actually building up good ideas and battle testing them and getting people to critique them and putting them out in detail, right? I think it is very unlikely that AI regulation is going to come out of a less wrong post. Um, but I have seen a lot of good ideas from less wrong posts ending up in, you know, different white paper proposals that now get floated around. And you need a lot more of those. It's funny because, you know, and I've seen this happen in Congress again and again and again. You might wonder, like, why do these think tanks produce all these white papers, you know, or reports that truly nobody reads? And there's a panel that nobody's at. It's a lot of work for nobody to read your thing and nobody to come to your speech. But it's not really nobody. It's that it may really be that only seven people read that report, but five of them were congressional staffers who had to work on this issue. Mm. And like, that's what this whole economy is. It is amazing to me the books that you've never heard of that have ended up hugely influencing national legislation, right? Most people have not read Jumpstarting America by John Gruber and Simon Johnson. But as I understand it, it was actually a pretty important part of the CHIPS bill. And so you have to build the ideas. You have to make the ideas legible and credible to people. And then you have to know the people you're trying to make these ideas legible and credible to. Like that is like the process by which, you know, you become part of this when it happens. Alison Young on the case of the found smallpox vials. So around the same time, the CDC was having all kinds of incidents in 2014. Um, in the middle of all of that, there was a cold storage room on the campus of the National Institutes of Health just north of Washington, D.C., where they were moving around some old cardboard boxes, and they look inside and they see all of these little tiny, very fragile vials from, from decades ago that are labeled in typewriter print with various pathogens' names on them. And it's powdered material. And as they're going through these glass vials, they see some that are, are labeled as variola. Which, yeah, just to be totally clear, is, is smallpox. Exactly. Variola is the pathogen that causes smallpox. Um, okay, so go on. They, they found vials of smallpox in, in a box in a storage room. Exactly, in an unlocked storage room. And so this was should have been incredibly concerning because smallpox is incredibly deadly. Um, it has been eradicated from the planet. And smallpox virus is only supposed to be found under treaties in two labs in the world. One is in, in Russia, and the other is a specific lab on the campus at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. And so these vials shouldn't have been in this cold storage uh, room at NIH. What was also concerning was how they responded to it when they found these vials. Ultimately, it was one scientist by themselves who basically picked up the cardboard box and walked it 
down the corridors of this building at the NIH and across the street and into another building. All the while, they're hearing this clink, clink, clink of these fragile old vials hitting each other as they're walking along. The FBI report that I read of the incident criticized the scientist and just the whole handling of this box because when it was properly cataloged in the end, there was a vial that had broken inside this box. And once again, the world got lucky and it was not smallpox virus. It was some sort of a tissue sample. Um, But as the FBI report noted that had that been the freeze-dried smallpox uh, specimen, uh, there was nothing really protecting the person who was, was carrying it. It's so disturbing. And so many things went wrong there. Uh, there was the fact that the vials were left there in the first place. There was the fact that the people transporting them didn't use the right PPE, that they didn't treat them with caution. And there were also the biosecurity aspects of this. You know, you would hope that everyone who is um, working around really very dangerous pathogens like smallpox, which should not get into other people's hands, part of the concern that was raised is you shouldn't necessarily have one single person by themselves carrying a box that contains smallpox virus. Toby Ord on Moral Trade. The idea there is just as people often exchange goods or services uh, in order to make both of them better off. You know, this is the idea that that Adam Smith talked about. Um, if you if you pay uh, the baker for some bread, uh, you're making this exchange because you both think that that you're better off uh, with the thing the other person had, and. You could do that not just about your self-interested preferences, but with your moral preferences. And in fact, the the theory of trade works equally well in that context. Uh, so, for example, suppose there were two friends, uh, one of whom used to be a vegetarian, uh, but had stopped doing it because uh, maybe they got disillusioned with uh, with some of the arguments about it. Uh, but they'd kind of gone off meat to some degree anyway, and so it wouldn't be too much of a burden if they went back to being a vegetarian. They also, uh, that person cares a lot about global poverty and their friend cares about uh, uh, factory farming and uh, vegetarianism. Hmm. Well, they could potentially make a deal and say, if you go back to being a vegetarian, I will uh, do this donating to this uh, this charity that you keep telling me about. And they might each not be quite willing to do that on their own kind of moral views, uh, but to think that that if the other person changed their behavior as well, uh, that the world really would be better off. And you can even get cases where where they've got diametrically opposed views. Uh, perhaps there's some big issue such as abortion or gun rights or something where people have, have you know diametrically opposed positions and there are charities which are diametrically opposed. And they're both thinking of donating um, to a pair of charities which are opposed with each other. And then you know that maybe they catch up for dinner and notice that this is going to happen. And they say, hang on a second. How about if instead of both donating $1,000 to this thing, uh, we instead donate our $2,000 uh, to a charity that, that while not as high on our, our list of priorities for charities, one that we actually both care about, and then instead of these, these effects basically cancelling out, uh, we'll be able to produce uh, good in the world. So that, that's the general idea of, of moral trade. And you can see why the, the moral trade would be a good thing if it's the case that even though people have different ideas about what's right, and, and these ideas can't all be correct, 
if they're, they're generally more often than not kind of pointing in a similar direction or something, uh, such that when we, we better satisfy the overall moral preferences of the people in the world, I think we've got some reason to expect the world to be getting better uh, in that process, in which case uh, moral trade would be a good thing. Michael Webb on how automation can actually create jobs. Let's still just look at this one sector that's getting automated and think about whether it really is the case that when you have big automation in a sector, the number of humans go down. Again, that's intuitive, right? You know, sure. automation means for your humans. Done. Turns out it's not that simple. And so there's a few uh, examples, I guess I'll start with, then we'll sort of, we can talk about sort of what the broad lesson is. So here is one example. I think this is due to uh, Jim Besson, who, who's an economist, who studied ATMs. So ATMs, you know, where you cash machines, right? You go to a bank branch and get, get cash out. So before ATMs, there were individual humans in the bank who would like, you'd go up to them and show some ID and get your you know, account details and they would give you some cash, right? And bank tellers, I think they were called. And you would think, right, ATM comes along, that's it for those people. You know, no more bank tellers, huge declines in employment in the banking sector. Right. And what in fact happened is something quite different. So the ATM did indeed um, reduce the number of people doing that specific task of handing out money, right? But of course, there are other things people do in bank branches as well. The big thing that happened is that because a given bank branch no longer needed to have all these very expensive humans, you know, doing the, the, the cash handing out, it became much cheaper to open bank branches. And so, huh, okay. whereas before there were only bank branches, perhaps in, you know, the sort of larger towns, or whatever, suddenly, banks were competing to open branches everywhere. Because you know, the more you can, you know, go into the, the smaller and smaller towns and, and whatever, you know, villages, who knows, you can, you know, have more customers and provide a better service and, and so on, right? And so what happened was the ATM meant there were fewer staff per bank branch, but enabled the opening of many more bank branches overall. And that actually offset the first impact, right? So fewer staff per bank branch, but so many more bank branches that the total number of people in bank branches actually went up, right? What they were doing was quite different. The humans now are doing sort of more high value add activities. They're not handing out cash. They are right. doing other kinds of services. But, you know, similar people doing a similar-ish job. Um, and there's actually more of them now, right? And so the sort of the fancy economist way of putting this is it's you have a sort of a demand elasticity in the presence of complementarity. So those are crazy <laughs> silly words, but this is exactly what they mean. Yep. So... Demand elasticity means when you reduce the price of something, you actually want more of it. So well, automation generally brings a cost of things down. But what normally happens is you just like, great, I have the same amount of stuff. He's like, no, I want more of that stuff now. Give me more, 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 more. Then in the presence of complementarity, that means that, um, so complementary, we think of, you know, if humans are complementary to the automation, the, the technology, whatever it is, in some way, right, there's still some humans involved, like fewer than before per unit of output, um, but still some. Sure then because people now want more and more and more of this stuff, it's sort of each unit of the thing is more automated, but there's still some humans involved and therefore you end up possibly having ever more humans um, totally demanded, doing slightly different things, but still roughly in the same ballpark. Mustafa Suleiman on voluntary versus mandatory commitments for AI labs. In July, uh, Inflection signed on to eight voluntary commitments uh, with, the, with the White House, including things like committing to internal and external security testing and investing in cybersecurity and insider threat safeguards and facilitating third-party discovery and reporting of vulnerabilities. Th those are all voluntary, though. What commitments would you like to become legally mandatory for all major AI labs in the US and UK? <laughs> that is a good question. 
I think some of those voluntary commitments should become legally mandated. Number one would be scale audits. What size is your latest model, right? Number two, there needs to be a framework for harmful model capabilities like bioweapons, coaching, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, general bomb making capabilities. Those things are pretty easy to document and it, you know it just should not be possible to reduce the barriers to entry for people who don't have specialist knowledge to go off and manufacture those things more easily. The third one that I I have said publicly and that I care a lot about is that we should just declare that these models shouldn't be used for electioneering, right? They just shouldn't be part of the political process. Ban that. Yeah, you shouldn't be able to ask Pi, you know, who Pi would vote for or like what the difference is between these two candidates. Now, the counter argument is that many people will say, well, this might be able to provide useful and accurate and valuable information to educate people about elections, et cetera, et cetera. Look, there is never going to be a perfect solution here. You, you have to take benefits away in order to avoid harms. And that's always the trade-off. You can't have perfect, you know, benefits without any harms, right? Like so, that that's that's just a trade-off. I would rather just take it all off the table, and say that we we can put some of it back later on once we've once we understand how to do it safely. That's the best way. That is totally the best way. Now, obviously, a lot of people say that I'm super naive in claiming that this is possible because you know models like Stable Diffusion and Llama Two are already out in open source, and people will certainly use that for electioneering. Again, this isn't trying to, you know, resolve every single threat vector to our democracy. It's just trying to say, like, at least the large-scale hyperscaler model providers, you know, like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, you know, and others, should just say, this is against our terms of service, right? So you're just making it a little bit more difficult and maybe even a little bit more taboo if you don't declare that your election materials are human-generated only. Paul Niehaus on objections to universal basic income. I think the most common ones I've heard are that that it might disincentivize work among recipients. Is that something you're worried about? It sounds like it's not something you've seen in other programs, but maybe it is the kind of thing that you might worry about when there is that long-term commitment. Right. So I think disincentivize is in fact not quite the right concept in the sense that there are programs where your eligibility for benefits tapers out as you get better off, right? Like the EITC in the US, for example, there's a phase out where if you're earning above a certain level, you no longer get it. And so there's a very mechanical disincentive to earn more there. And that's not what we're talking about with UBI because the whole idea is that it is unconditional on anything. It's like, no matter what, you're gonna get this money, right? Right. So I think what people actually have in mind here is not like an incentive per se, but more that you know maybe you're just less motivated if some of your basic needs are already met to go out and earn more. So it's more of a sort of impact that income or wealth has on your personal motivation, which is a, a somewhat different thing. And that's also very important because, you know, I think, and I think the data also say that those sorts of income effects are actually probably very different in different contexts. And so in low-income countries in particular, right, people are extremely poor. And so getting somebody from, you know, below the poverty line to $2.15 a day is by no means going to make them feel content with their life or as if there's nothing else that they wish they could have. And on top of that, one of the barriers for many of them to work is just access to the capital, right, to the tools they need. And so there's this additional channel where, you know, hey, having access to some money might actually enable me to invest in ways that would make it worth working more. 
And so what we've actually seen in the data on most cash transfer programs in low-income countries has been, you know, either not much change in how much people work or a bit of an increase, you know, which is contrary, I think, to what a lot of people expected or were worried about. Cool. Yeah, I do feel persuaded in particular about this. If you're taking someone just slightly above the poverty line, that feels pretty different to, I don't know, giving them some some high monthly allowance that means they can not only meet all of their basic needs but have all the luxuries they want. So yeah, I can see how someone just meeting their basic needs would not necessarily be discouraged from doing other types of productive work. But I guess before we move on and talk more about the study, I'm curious if you have a guess at what the best objection to UBI is. I think it depends a bit on where we're talking about. So in in rich countries, if you do the math on something like UBI, it's very, very expensive. And I, you know, I think that in rich countries, we have the administrative machinery to target benefits to people who are, you know, disabled or who have hit been hit some companies a shock, health insurance, things like that, in ways that poorer countries have less capacity to do. And so um, I think it's, you know, if you do the sort of technocratic math, it's not as clear to me in some of the richer countries that this would be the best way to spend a dollar to help people living in extreme poverty. In poorer countries, you know, it may be that some degree of targeting or means testing or something like that is a good idea, but the capacity to do that is more limited. And so I think there's a stronger case for, maybe it's not universal everywhere, but, you know, sort of large regions, for example, everybody getting some degree of basic income, something like that. But I think the other thing to emphasize is that I don't think that UBI is fundamentally a sort of technocratic idea. Right? It's not like someone sat down and wrote out the optimization problem of how can we do the most good for the world, and UBI popped out as the solution to that, You know, sort of with a given budget. It's more like this would be a different politics and a different ethics of what we think a just society might look like and something that people might be willing to get behind and you know, therefore to, to spend or to give more than they would otherwise. And so in some sense, I think that's the real question about UBI, and it's not one that experimental evidence of impact is going to directly answer, although it could contribute to some extent. I mean, and so look at sort of how political communication works, right? Nobody gets up and says, hey, like, you know, great news. I have this complicated plan. We've really thought it through carefully. It's got these five different parts. Healthcare is going to work this way, all this stuff. You know, this is a great vision for what a fair society is going to look like. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. But potentially you could say, I have this vision, which is that everybody should get enough to meet their basic needs. And people might support that and be willing to get behind that. And so the idea that this might be a politically viable narrative, even if it's not dollar for dollar, the sort of absolutely ideal, optimal way to allocate a given budget, you know, I think that's very much an important part of the question about UBI. Tim LeBon on exposure therapy. That's why it's an important part of treatment, say for anxiety, and this is doubling back to your question about various treatments, which I only gave a very partial answer to, yeah. uh, to do exposure work. And sometimes it's uh, in the session, in vivo exposure work, where you're actually experiencing the thing you're anxious about. So something that we treat quite a lot in, uh, I treat quite a lot in the NHS, is obsessive compulsive disorder. Hmm. I haven't treated it amongst many effective altruists. I don't know, don't know why that is. Yeah. Uh, Interestingly, so obsessive compulsive disorder can take various forms. It might be someone who cleans a lot and they, they might also have an intrusive thought, which is the house will burn down. And then the response would be to do a lot of checking. They would check uh, all of the electric 
sockets to check they're all turned off and then another doubt would creep in and they'd have a kind of better safe than sorry attitude and then say let's check them another time then they go back in their bed and worry again and check it you know i mean we've all done that to some extent not not that exactly but we we probably you know particularly if we're stressed this is an example of what you're saying you know if we're on holiday we think god have i have i have i shut that window and then sometimes we might even get halfway to the station and go back to check we lock the door so when we're anxious we tend to think that more but people with ocd they get into a real horrible pattern of having those intrusive thoughts and then doing the compulsive behaviors and the problem is that those compulsive behaviours are then rewarded because it reduces the anxiety and so you can almost get addicted to them. Now, the reason that I was mentioning that OCD is that you draw out the map, you would say, okay, what's your intrusive thought? That causes you anxiety. And then you do the compulsive behaviour, which then relieves it. And then you might even get people to see that the intrusive thought is just a thought and it's probably not true and you might get them to see, in theory, that they don't need to do the compulsive behaviour. And that's what you would do as the first step of therapy. But you ain't really crack the OCD until they are able to resist the temptation to do the compulsion when they're really triggered. So, but the way now I, I just work remotely, I just mm-hmm. work by Zoom. But before the pandemic, I remember being uh, in, uh, it's actually a doctor's surgery I worked in in one particular setting, and this person was worried about dirt so we went outside and you know she got her hands full of mud and then normally she would spend hours washing repetitively sometimes you know with bleach until they were all kind of sore so but this time she just washed once and then sat with the discomfort and so that is something called exposure actually it's called erp it's exposure and then you prevent the response the normal response would be the compulsion Mm. Uh, you do the exposure and then you don't have You don't the do the compulsion. Well, and you, then you, gradually you yeah, break the You cycle. want to do it, hmm. but you, you tolerate the distress. And the more you do it, the easier it is to tolerate the distress. Nita Farahani on hacking neural interfaces. There was a patient who was suffering from really severe depression to the point where uh, she described herself as being terminally ill, like she was at the end of her life. And every different kind of treatment had failed for her. And finally, she agreed with her physicians to have electrodes implanted into her brain. And those electrodes were able to trace the specific neuronal firing patterns in her brain when she was experiencing the most severe symptoms of depression. And then we're able to, after tracing those, every time that you know you would have activation of those signals, basically interrupt those signals. So think of it like a pacemaker, but for the brain, where you know, if, like when a signal goes wrong, it would override it and put that new signal in. Mm-hmm. And that meant that she now actually has a typical range of emotions. She has been able to overcome depression. She now lives a life worth living. That's a great story, right? That's a happy story and a happy application of this technology. But that means we're down to the point where you could trace specific, at least with implanted electrodes, neuronal firing patterns, and then interrupt and disrupt those patterns. Can we do the same for other kinds of thoughts, right? Could it be that like, you know, one day we get to the point where if you're wearing EEG headsets that also have the capacity for neurostimulation, that you could pick up specific patterns of thoughts and disrupt those specific patterns of thoughts if they're hacked, right? If your device is hacked, for example, maybe, right? I mean, we're now sort of like imagining a science fiction world where this is happening, but 
But that's sort of how I would imagine it would first happen is that like you could have either first very general stimulation like I experienced at the Royal Society meeting where suddenly I'm experiencing vertigo, right? And that's somebody could hack Mm -hmm. your device. Like I'm wearing this headset for meditation, but, you know, it's hacked and suddenly I'm experiencing vertigo and I'm disabled. You know, that's devices get hacked and we can imagine devices getting hacked and especially ones that have neurostimulation capacity. They could be hacked either in really specific patterns or they could be hacked in ways that generally could just take a person out. Santosh Harish on how bad air pollution is. Air pollution is the single largest environmental and occupational risk factor to public health. Per the Global Burden of Disease estimates, uh, it accounts for something like 6.67 million deaths a year. Uh, This was as of 2019, which to give context is about 12% of all deaths globally. Not all of this is particulate matter. Particulate matter is the vast majority of this. Uh, a small fraction of this is, is what's called ground level ozone. But yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. So when I started working on air pollution, right, some, some of these number, high numbers were sort of hard to sort of come to terms with, right? Uh, could it really be this bad? So the, the thing about air pollution, which makes it so harmful, and in particular particulate matter air pollution, is that Particulate matter is not a single substance, right? It's a cocktail of various things that are in the air that just happen to be uh, finer than 2.5 microns in diameter. And it it is composed of a variety of chemical substances. So it it could be stuff like soil dust, which is sort of naturally occurring or, or, or sea salt, which are likely to be, you know, not particularly harmful. And then there is stuff like lead and other heavy metals that are that are suspended in uh, in the air there are uh, inorganic compounds like sulfates and nitrates which sort of originate from vehicular emissions from coal power plant uh, emissions and so on so it's it's a variety of different things because these particles are as fine as they are they are able to enter the lungs enter the the systemic circulation and then basically travel to different organs and cause a variety of different harms Yeah. What is perhaps the most outrageous or emotionally grabbing example of of air pollution to you? So something, the thing that I have in mind is something that barely benefits the person who's emitting all of this pollution, but it's causing massive health damage to people in the nearby area. One thing that comes to mind is municipal waste burning that happens in, you know, sort of many cities in the the global south. So basically, this is waste that gets collected from people's homes. And and instead of sort of being transported to a a waste management facility or a landfill or something, basically gets burnt at some point because that's like the fastest way to to dispose of it, which really sort of points to poor delivery of public services, right? But this is like ubiquitous in you know virtually every small or even like medium sized city um, it it happens in larger cities too in this part of the world so i think that's something that sort of truly annoys me because it it feels like the kind of thing that ought to be you know fairly easily managed but it happens a lot it happens because people presumably don't think that it's particularly harmful 
I don't think it saves a ton of money uh, for the for the municipal corporations and other local government that are meant to sort of manage it. So, so that's that's one example that comes to mind. It, mm. Another, which uh, seems sort of downright evil to me, is um, a whole bunch of industries that tend to not use the pollution control equipment that they have in their facilities already, right? And and just basically like dump the the gas that gets uh, emitted from the the various processes in the in the industry you know without the the emission controls in the middle of the night uh when it's it's not obvious i mean it it can't be detected as easily as it would in the day and this is basically to save what i suspect is change right in, in terms of like maintenance and operation costs of this equipment you have the equipment and, and there are these standards and yeah so that's i think downright evil on on sort of the part of these industries Jeff Sebo on extending moral consideration to AI systems. The general case for extending moral consideration to AI systems is that they might be conscious or sentient or agential or otherwise significant. And if they might have those features, then we should extend them at least some moral consideration in the spirit of caution and humility. So the standard should not be, do they definitely matter? It should also not be, do they probably matter? It should be, is there a reasonable, non-negligible chance that they matter given the information available? And once we clarify that that is the bar for moral inclusion, then it becomes much less obvious that AI systems will not be passing that bar anytime soon. Yeah, I feel kind of confused about how to think about that bar where I think you're you're using the term non-negligible chance. I'm curious... What is a negligible chance? Where is the line? At what point is something non-negligible? Yeah, this is a perfectly reasonable question. This is somewhat of a term of art in philosophy and decision theory. And we might not be able to very precisely or reliably say exactly where the threshold is between non-negligible risks and negligible risks. But what we can say as a starting point is that a risk can be quite low the probability of harm can be quite low, and it can still be worthy of some consideration. So for example, why is driving drunk wrong? Not because it will definitely kill someone, not even because it will probably kill someone. It might have only a one in a hundred or one in a thousand chance of killing someone. But if driving drunk has a one in a hundred or one in a thousand chance of killing someone against their will, unnecessarily, that can be reason enough to get an Uber or a Lyft or stay where I am and sober up. It at least merits consideration, and it can even in some situations be decisive. So as a starting point, we can simply acknowledge that in some cases, a risk can be as low as one in a hundred or one in a thousand, and it can still merit consideration. Yeah, right. It does seem totally clear and good that regularly in our daily lives, uh, we kind of, we consider small risks of big things that might be either very good or very bad. And we think that's just like clearly worth doing and sensible. Sometimes probably in personal experience, I may not do it as much as I should, but like on reflection, I certainly endorse it. And so I guess the thinking is here that given that there's the potential for many, many, many beings with a potential for sentience, albeit uh, some, some small likelihood, it's kind of at that point that we might start wanting to give them moral consideration. I guess, do you want to say exactly what moral consideration is warranted at that point? Yeah, this is a really good question, and it actually breaks down into multiple questions. One is a question about moral weight. We already have a sense that we should give different moral weights 
to beings with different welfare capacities. If an elephant can suffer much more than an ant, then the elephant should get priority over the ant to that degree. Should we also give more moral weight to beings who are more likely to matter in the first place? If an elephant is 90% likely to matter and an ant is 10% likely to matter, should I also give the elephant more weight for that reason? And then another question is what these beings might even want and need in the first place. What would it actually mean to treat an AI system well if they were sentient or otherwise morally significant? That question is going to be very difficult to answer. Tom Davidson on why AI takeoff might be shockingly fast. The conclusion from the report is, I guess, pretty scary. The bottom line is that my median guess is that it would take just a small number of years to go from that 20% to the 100%. So, you know, I, I think equally likely to happen in less than three years as it is to happen in more than three years. So a pretty abrupt and quick change is the kind of median... Kind of best guess, median. Wow. And do you believe that in your bones? Does that feel like like very plausible to you? Yeah, I do. So some some quick things about why why it's plausible. Each year, once you take algorithms, better algorithms, and using more compute into account, we're currently training... AIs each year that have kind of three times bigger brains than the year before. It's a really rough way to think about it. But, you know, imagine, you know, three times smaller brain than humans. That's chimpanzee brain size. Right. Um, Each year you're going from chimpanzees to humans? It's really hard to, to try and account for the effect of the algorithmic improvements. But on my kind of best guess of, of what those amount to, yeah, each year... We're making the brains of AI systems about three times bigger. Wow. And right now, it's humans that are doing all the work to improve those AI systems. As we get close to AIs that match humans, we'll be increasingly using AI systems to improve AI algorithms, design better AI chips. And so overall, I expect that pace to accelerate absent a specific effort to slow down. Right. So rather than three times bigger brains each year, it's going to be going faster and faster, five times bigger brain each year, 10 times bigger brain each year. And I think that that just already makes it plausible that there could be just a small number of years where this transition happens, where AIs go from much worse than humans to much better. But to add in another factor, I think that it's likely that AIs are going to be automating AI research itself before they're automating things in most of the economy. Right. Because that's the kind of the task and the workflow that AI researchers themselves really understand. So they would they would be kind of best placed to use AIs effectively there. There aren't going to be kind of delays to rolling it out or, or trouble finding the customers for that in the same way. The task of AI research is quite similar to what language models are currently trained to do They're currently trained to predict the next token on the internet, which means they're particularly well-suited to text-based tasks. Right. And the task of writing code is is, is one such task, and there is lots of data on on examples of code writing. Oh, I see. So it's like, typically, I don't know that much about coding. Is it basically also token prediction? That is how current 
coding assistants work, I think, is that they they're, they're looking at you, you're kind of you start writing your code and they predict what's going to follow. Like one way of putting it would be by the time that the AIs can do twenty percent of cognitive tasks in the broader economy, maybe they can already do forty or fifty percent of tasks specifically in AI R and D. Right. And so they could have already really started accelerating the pace of progress by the time we get to that twenty percent economic impact threshold. I mean, at that point, you could easily imagine. Really, it's just one year. You know, you, you, you give them a 10x bigger brain, that's like going from chimps to humans and then doing that jump again. Mm-hmm. That could easily be enough to to go from 20% to 100%, just intuitively. And, you know, and I think that's kind of, that that's kind of the default, really. That's terrifying. Yeah, and I think there's even more pointing that direction. I think that already we're seeing that with GPT-4 and other systems like that, people are becoming much more interested in AI, much more willing to invest in AI. The demand for good AI researchers is is going up. Mm-hmm. The wages for, for good AI researchers are going up. AI research is going to be a really financially valuable thing to automate. Right. You know, if you're if you're paying five hundred thousand dollars a year to to one of your human research engineers, which is which is you know lower than what some of these researchers are earning, mm. then if you can if you can manage to get your AI system to double their productivity. That's that's way better than doubling the productivity of someone who works in a random other industry. Just this the straightforward financial incentive as the kind of power of AI becomes apparent will be towards let's see if we can automate this really lucrative type of work. So that that's just another reason to think that we get the automation much earlier on the AI side than on the general economy side and that by the time we're seeing big economic impacts AI is you know already improving at a blistering pace potentially. Spencer Greenberg on improvements to social science research. I think currently something like 40% of papers in top social science journals don't replicate, but it's pretty dependent on what field it is. And I think we should, I mean, I think ideally we should get that down to something like 15%, not replicators, you know, something you're never going to get to zero because there's going to be, there's always kind of things that could happen. It could be just bad luck or weird chance or stuff like that. But I think, I think it's just significantly too high a replication failure rate. And the basic answer is that it's an incentive problem fundamentally. But I think there's, you know, that is sort of like the super high level answer. But there's like interesting things to unpack there about, well, what would it mean to make better incentives? But at the end of the day, if you're a social scientist in academia, you need to get publications in top journals in order to stay in the field and to get those tenure track roles and eventually to get tenure. And if you can't get published in the top journals, you basically will get squeezed out. So there's kind of a double incentive whammy here. One is that, if you're kind of doing fishy methods, you might have a competitive advantage over people who are really playing fairly, right? Because maybe the fishy methods let you publish more often. So that's really, really bad. And the second thing is those, uh, eventually you're gonna end up with a field that's gets filled with the people that are doing the fishy methods. And then that becomes a norm, right? It's like, if you see other people doing fishy things and you're like, I guess that's how research is done, then that's obviously gonna have a negative effect on the whole field. And so one thing that's really great about the kind of open science movement is it's by pushing back against these norms, it's like trying to create a new set of norms, a better set of norms. I think we still have a long way to go to make science better, very long way to go. However, I do think there are glimmers of hope. So one thing I'm seeing, and this is just kind of anecdotally, is I see more data being shared. I see more researchers being like, here's my data, go check it out. And also more material sharing as well. Like, here are the materials I use for this study. 
the open science framework has been a really positive force where they really are encouraging people to share their materials in an open way. It's kind of a nice platform for helping you do that. So that's really cool. I think there's more replications happening, way more replication projects where people are going and trying to replicate results. So that's really great. There's also this idea of registered reports. Uh, Chris Chambers has really been an advocate for this, and they're quite an, an amazing idea, where basically they get journals to agree to accept a paper before the study has been run. So basically they, the, the journal knows exactly what the, the study is going to be, but they don't yet know the results, nor do the researchers. The journal agrees to accept it, and then the research team goes and runs the study, and it gets published regardless of whether it's positive or negative result. And this is really nice because it reduces the incentive to p-hack your results just to show some cool result because your papers already get published either way, right? So, so that's really nice. And, um, and yeah, and I would just say just generally more awareness, like the increased skepticism is probably helpful because it means people know they're going to be scrutinized a bit more for the research methods. Brian Kaplan on rational irrationality on the part of voters. Imagine that you go to the grocery store and you just start throwing objects in at random and buy them. All right, what happens? Well, you waste a pile of your own money on a bunch of stuff you don't actually want, right? Or imagine even more strongly, what if you just go in there and you just buy a bunch of stuff that you're supposed to want? So you go just go and put in a whole bunch of rice cakes or whatever <laughs> whatever stuff is allegedly super healthy, and then you buy it. And what's happened? Yeah, you just have a bunch of stuff that you don't even want to eat because it sounds good, but in fact, it's disgusting and you can't stand it, right? And yeah, and when you make decisions on, on this basis, you are the one that suffers. It is your money that is wasted, which doesn't mean that no one will ever do it. We've all per made purchases that afterwards were like, man, that was kind of dumb. Why did I buy that thing? And yet it is quite abnormal for you to go fill your cart with a bunch of total junk that you don't even want, and then get home and say, why did this happen to me? On the other hand, if you go and vote randomly, or go and vote for a bunch of stuff that just sounds good, even though it doesn't work very well in practice, what happens to you? And the answer is the same thing that would have happened to you if you were the most diligent, thoughtful voter in the world and voted on that basis. Because you're just one person. You're just one person out of millions or tens of millions or even 100 million voters. So effectively, you have no influence on the outcome, which means that you really can safely go and vote randomly or you could very safely go and vote for what sounds good rather than what actually works well. All right. Now, many people say, well, why would I vote randomly? Yeah, probably it's going to be more of you'll vote emotionally. You'll vote based upon what sounds good. You'll vote based upon ideology. Uh, if you were to go and say, I'm going to go and figure out what job to do based on philosophy, it's like, yeah, your philosophy is not going to be very helpful for figuring out these questions. Uh, but if you're going, going to go and vote based on a philosophy, that's actually quite normal. Right, uh, for people to go and and do it in that way. Uh, now, I'm actually we're in the middle of a new book where I think that I really am taking the argument from the myth of the rational voter. I'm giving it a lot more psychological structure, and I think that I'm really happy with, with how it's coming out. And this is where I build very heavily on the idea of social desirability bias. Uh, it's basically very simple. It's a common sense idea with a fancy name. It just says when the truth is ugly, people lie. And when the lies become ubiquitous enough, people often just even forget that they're lying. They lose consciousness of it because no one's ever even challenging them. And I say this is really the general theory of democracy is that what rules policy is just what sounds good, not what is good. Because everyone or like virtually everyone really is voting based purely upon the most superficial appearances. And even curiosity about what's, what the real effects of policies are is so low. Like another one, this one is great for yays. 
right? Almost every country, I think really every rich country, spends considerably more on universal redistribution than on means-tested redistribution. Hmm. From an EA perspective, this is just insanity. Just imagine what EAs would say about a billionaire who says, I have $8 billion to give away. Here's my plan. $1 to each person on earth. <laughs> and it's like, all right, there are worse things you could do, like you have $8 billion to a terrorist group or something, <laughs> but it's about as dumb of a helpful thing as you could do. It's like, target your resources to where they do the most good. And yet, almost every, gov- every re- first world government anyway, they spend a lot more on universal redistribution where the, the intellectual case is pretty simple. It comes down to why take money from everyone to give to everyone? Why not instead focus on the biggest problems and just say most people just don't need help and can take care of themselves? And then the, the, the defenses of this, even social scientists are so pathetic. <laughs> it's pathetic just in the sense of they hardly even exist. If you just go to Google Scholar and try to find all the defenses of the way that got that first world government spend trillions of dollars every year, you've got like 20 articles. Like, and that's it. It's like 20 articles to justify spending trillions <laughs> of dollars every year. Like, you know, like, and what are the defenses? Well, there's one of the only way to redistribute is to do it universally because otherwise people are vote too selfishly and you have to basically trick them into thinking that they're benefiting, even though, of course, on that they are not, which is an awfully specific theory of human error. Seren Kell on what makes fermentation so exciting. If you just, you know, do a standard life cycle assessment of fermentation as a process, you do have massive savings in terms of land use and and greenhouse gas emissions and water usage and, and other metrics that are important for environmental impact. So just to give like a couple examples of this, corn's um, fermentation made protein that has a carbon footprint 70% lower than chicken. And similarly, wow. Yeah. And I should say as well, like chickens are hard benchmark because chickens are incredibly efficient, relatively speaking, from an environmental perspective compared with beef, say. Yeah. 70% does sound huge. Are there, are there other examples where fermentation has been leveraged to address environmental challenges? Yeah. So, I mean, if you do a like-for-like comparison, comparing with beef, your your savings are obviously going to be a lot better than compared with chicken. So if you produce whey protein via precision fermentation, that causes 97% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than if you're taking it from a cow directly. Um, So that's another life cycle assessment that's been done of a particular product. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. But I think it is worth like talking about the fact that not only is fermentation just less resource intensive overall, but back to that point about being able to upcycle waste side streams from other industries, there is this big opportunity for just like broader sustainability benefits there. So I can just give a couple examples of what that could look like in practice. Yeah, great. So for example, there's a German fermentation startup called Mush Labs that are collaborating with a brewery to use essentially spent grain from the beer production process as the food that they then feed to their mycoprotein. Super cool. Yeah, it's it's really cool. We've actually funded a project through our research grant program where researchers are taking corn husks, which again is another waste waste agricultural byproduct. Must be a huge byproduct. Yeah, and then again, using that as a potential feedstock or food for their microorganisms to consume and just getting high quality protein at the end of that process. 
And there's a bunch more research that can be done. Oyster mushrooms, one paper suggested recently, could grow on just hydrated wood pulp, which is an incredibly abundant side stream from the paper industry. So yeah, there's just a lot of opportunities there. Kevin Esfeld on using metagenomics to stop a stealth pandemic. Imagine a fast-spreading respiratory HIV. It sweeps around the world. Almost nobody has symptoms. Nobody notices until years later when the first people who are infected begin to succumb. They might die. Something else debilitating might happen to them. But by that point, just about everyone on the planet would have been infected already. And then it would be a race. Can we come up with some kind of way of defusing the thing? Can we come up with the equivalent of HIV antiretrovirals before it's too late? Yeah, that's pretty horrific. Yeah, in the case of HIV, while it's horrific, we've gotten very lucky uh, in that it's not nearly as transmissible as respiratory illnesses. But it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, There could be something that was much more transmissible, but had this long lag. But it sounds like you think there are ways of actually detecting uh, these pathogens early, despite the fact that people aren't having any symptoms. Uh, Can you explain how, how we do that? The first way is we look for things that we think are suspicious, ways that we imagine such a thing might be created, what viruses it might be, or bacteria it might be based on. And we look for those together with signatures of engineering. So we figure this is probably not going to happen naturally, although we should be looking for it, right? The notion that NIH will fund tons and tons of research to cure or prevent HIV and basically none on detecting the next one suggests that our society is a little bit overly obsessed with cures at the expense of prevention, which we all know is better. But we can look for suspected signatures. The problem is that that's not reliable because if an adversary knows what we're looking for, they can engineer something that we won't detect. Are we basically just screening random people and checking for random things that look kind of engineered? You can do it one of two ways. You can take clinical samples. So you imagine SARS-2 class nasal swabs, and then just do metagenomic sequencing of everything that's in there. The problem is you'll always get some of their DNA then, and therefore you'll get some of their genome, and so there's there's privacy concerns because there's individual people. So the other way to do it is to sequence wastewater. And so you can imagine just municipal wastewater plants, but the one we're probably more excited about is sequencing airplane lavatory wastewater. Because we know that all human pathogens spread through the air traffic network. Mm -hmm. So you can get a leg up on them if you specifically look for them in airplane lavatory wastewater. Genius. Is that reliable? Like, do you have to know what you're looking for in order to pick up on it? Or are you just like, oh, this is kind of a weird, unexpected thing. And then you happen to notice it looks engineered. So you can look for specific signatures of particular sequences that you think will be present if you have some idea of how to build one. But that's still not reliable because the adversary can engineer around that sort of thing. If you know what genetic engineering detection algorithm you're using, then obviously they can check the thing they're making to make sure that it doesn't trigger it. But what we're also looking into is the reliable way. I always want to be cautious when it comes to, you know, the possible end of civilization and my children dying and me dying and and all the hopes and dreams of everyone being shattered. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really want to take chances with that. But here's the genius thing. Whatever the threat is, if it's biological, it's made of nucleic acids in its genome. And it needs to spread rapidly 
which means it needs to become more common in our samples and across the world in a pattern that should match that of novel variants of SARS-2 or on different timescales, other things. That is, we should see some pattern of exponential-like growth. And if you build a system and look for those signatures, you should see every new variant of every existing human pathogen, for example. You also see some weird spikes when the airline changes, you know, its food sourcing and you start seeing plant viruses from whatever the lettuce they're serving now. So you'll see some weird spikes and there'll be some background. It won't just be human. But the nice thing about the airplane laboratory is it is almost all human samples plus whatever the airline just fed people. Okay. And the point is you should see everything spreading through humans. Every human pathogen, every new variant, every new mutation that they're accumulating that is starting to spread, and eventually to everywhere in the world, we should see them all. And there's just not that many of them. There's only 200-something viruses that are known to infect humans, period. Once you're monitoring all of them, that's not so many that you can't have a human look at them. And so even if it's designed to evade your engineering detection algorithms, you can still have an expert human look at anything that is new. Uh -huh. Anything, 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 anything that is new. It is worth having an expert who is paranoid and suspicious and very good at engineering biology look at it <laughs> and say, do I think there is anything at all concerning about this? Is it a baseline pathogen or even commensal mutualist that's spreading rapidly? Is there any way that, you know, what, what do we think the fitness advantage here is, is that's causing it to spread rapidly? Do we, is it doing anything unusual? Is it, in, is it expected to interact with any biological system? Are there any signs of genes that would not normally be there based on all of our other examples of things like this? You know, maybe they look natural, but it's really statistically unusual to see a gene there for this viral family. Hannah Ritchie on how buying environmentally friendly technology helps low-income countries. I think that often the the economics and the political ends often like go very closely together. Like I often get the question from people of there's always this question of like changing individual behaviors like what impact does that actually have and am I wasting my time because it's all about systemic change. Or you hear this argument often from from countries some of them very rich like the UK for example where people say like the UK only emits 1% of carbon emissions right like what we do just doesn't matter in the scheme of things but like the key argument i'm making whether it's like talking about like individual changes or changes for countries which now are quite small emitters is that the the impacts they have like really have these large spillover impacts on on one on policies, but also on the economics of the technologies. Right. So an example of that on an individual level, if you, like one way you can have additional impact is on the the signal you're sending to policies that you care about the environment, you care about climate change, but there's also a really strong like technology economics signal you're sending where if you buy an electric car, you're showing to the market, hey, there's a big market over here for people to serve, come and serve us. Right. Or like installing solar power or um, buying meat substitutes instead. Like what you're doing there, as we discussed, we need to make these technologies cheaper for people in low-income countries for them to have as the default option. And by buying those, you're basically bringing down the cost curve for all of these technologies. Right, so it's right. like your impact is way beyond your like individual thing. 
It's like this collective pulling the market in a certain direction. Right, okay. So the argument is something like, while you might not uh, think it's that important for you to buy an electric car from like your own environmental perspective, because generally cars in the UK have technology built in them that means you won't be emitting loads, even if you have a non-electric car. But if loads of people in the UK buy electric cars, then the electric car technology just gets really good and drives the price down. And if the price is low enough, other countries, uh, lower and middle income countries might eventually get to just like go right to the electric car and skip over some of that intermediate step where they're polluting loads. Right. I mean, I think that, I mean, that's, that wasn't strictly true because cars in the, the UK, like they might have lower like local air pollutants, but they still emit a lot of carbon. Okay. Right. So it's not that they like don't emit a lot of carbon, but yeah, like that's the core of the argument that by like, basically what pulled these prices down was people buying them when they were really expensive. And and that's the only reason that they've come down in cost is because they were but they were being deployed because people were were buying them when they were expensive, um, and we never would have seen these costs decline if we hadn't invested in them them early. Yeah, um, that feels really cool to me as a way. Um, I guess I'd like not had the visceral sense that like I don't know rich people in California all buying Teslas was like that important for the world. But I guess if it's creating this flow through effect where like it makes Tesla's and the technology that makes Tesla's possible much cheaper, uh, then they will just eventually exist elsewhere in the world uh, much sooner than they might have otherwise. Right. The price decline in these technologies is like enormous. So like, for example, if you look at batteries, so like the big hurdle for electric cars for a long time was the cost of the batteries. So if you go back to like 1990... Like I calculated the, like the cost of a Tesla battery that you'd use in a Tesla car today would have cost like $1 million and it now costs wow. like 13 grand. <laughs> wow. And that like, is amazing. And like, so like I often get this, like when I think about like uh, climate action and like, I've been really frustrated by like how slow progress has been. And it seems like we've not been making progress but when you think about the cost of these technologies a couple of decades ago, it's very obvious why we weren't making a lot of progress. Like no one was buying a car that cost a million pounds for right. the for the battery. Um, and it's the same for like solar and wind, for example. They were just way too expensive for the world to adopt. And part of why I'm so optimistic is because all of these technologies are now very, very cost competitive. It's just a completely different situation from where we were even a decade ago where it just seemed completely unfeasible that we would that the world would pay loads of money to install them. And now it just seems obvious because they're actually, in many cases, cheaper. The cost of solar panels has fallen by more than 90% in the last decade. In the last decade. Johannes Akva on political action versus lifestyle changes. Yes, you mentioned a few different things there. Uh, One of them was, yeah, focus on lifestyle change. And I suppose that's how I often encountered climate change discussion, at least when I was a a teenager or at college, was about changing the amount of emissions that you have by not driving a car or not taking flights. It sounds like you're you're, you're not too keen on that (laughs) as a a key focus uh, for, for advocacy. Why is that? So, I mean, that's also how I grew up, right? So, like, I literally grew up with this idea of, like, I need to save water because otherwise the water will run out, like, wasn't climate, but like those kind of things, mm-hmm. right? Or like I never got a driving license for climate reasons and all of these things. Well, I think 
it's not so much that I'm not a fan of this. I think like as soon as it kind of only a little bit kind of crowds out your political action, that's not the thing to focus on. I think that's the way I would put it. So like I'm doing a lot of those lifestyle changes myself, but I think ultimately political action in the broader sense is like where essentially everyone listening to this can have more impact. And this can be different things, right? This can be voting, this can be protesting, writing your senator, or I mean, for me, like donating is really a form of political action as well. Ultimately, the reason for that is because what you can do for your lifestyle changes, even when you're in the US, which is kind of the highest per capita emitting rich country, your emissions are something like 10 tons per year. So like you can maybe reduce this a little bit, but like ultimately, like the most you could do is kind of reduce that and compared to other things, like compared to other changes you can induce, this is just not that significant. And that's also not how we would solve any other kind of issue. Like we would not solve like crime with saying everyone should just not commit crime, right? We're like, I mean, that's also part of it. <laughs> and we're also having a police and like we're, we're building a public response to this, right? I mean, just, just to show like that framing matters. I think it's kind of useful to think about like, how do we think about other problems and like for other kind of large social problems, we would never kind of think we're solving them through like billions of people acting, like collaborating on kind of virtuous actions every day. Like this is just not, not a mode for how we solve other problems. Rowan Shah on skepticism around one distinct point where everything goes crazy. I think there is a common meme floating around that like, once you develop AGI, that's sort of the last thing that you that humanity does. After that, our values are locked in and like either it's going to be really great or it's going to be terrible. And I'm not really sold on this. I think so one, I, I guess I just see a I have a view that AI systems will become more powerful relatively continuously. So there won't be like one specific point where you're like, this particular thing is the AGI with the locked in values. This doesn't mean that it won't be fast, to be clear. I do actually think that it will feel crazy fast by like our normal human intuitions. But I do think it will be like capabilities improve continuously and there's not one distinct point where everything goes crazy. And so that's part of the reason for not believing this lock in story. The other part of the reason is I expect that AI systems will be doing things in ways similar to humans. So like probably it will not have like, okay, this is the one thing that the universe should look like. And now we're going to ensure that that happens. But especially if we succeed at alignment instead, it will be the case that the AI systems are helping us figure out what exactly it is that we want through things like philosophical reflection, ideally, or maybe, you know, the world continues to like get technologies at a breakneck speed and we just sort of frantically throw laws around and regulations and so on. And that's the way that we make progress on figuring out what we want. Who knows? But probably it will be similar to what we've done in the past as opposed to some sort of value lock-in. I see. So if things go reasonably well, there probably will be an extended period of collaboration, I suppose, between these models and humans. So it's not uh, humans aren't going to go from making decisions and being in the decision loop uh, from one day to being completely cut out of it the next. It's maybe more of a gradual process of delegation and collaboration where we trust the models more and give them kind of more more authority, perhaps. That's right, and and also like that that's definitely one part of it. And another part that I would say is that we can like delegate a lot of things that we know that we want to do to the AI systems, such as like, you know, 
acquiring resources, inventing new technology, things like that, without also delegating. And now you must optimize the universe to be in this perfect state that we're going to program in by default. We can still leave the, you know, what exactly are we going to do with this cosmic endowment in the hands of humans or in the hands of like, well, humans assisted by AIs or to some like process of philosophical reflection or, you know, I'm sure the future will come up with better suggestions than I can today. Yeah. What, what would you say to people in the audience who do have this alternative view that things that, uh, you know, humans could end up without much decision making power extremely quickly? Yeah. What, why, why don't you believe that? Um, so I guess I, I do think that that's plausible via misalignment. So this is all like conditional on us actually succeeding at alignment. If people are also saying this, even conditional on succeeding at alignment, my guess is that this is because they're thinking that success at alignment involves like instilling all of human values into the AI system and then saying go. And I think I would just question why that's their vision of what alignment should be. It doesn't seem to me like alignment requires you to go down that route as opposed to like the AI systems are just doing the things that humans want. And in cases where humans are uncertain about what they want, the AI systems just like don't do stuff. Yeah. You know, like take some cautious baseline. Tantum Collins on misconceptions about AI in China. I think that a lot of news coverage of China tends to fluctuate between extremes. Uh, and this is true in AI as well as sort of like more broadly, where there will be a hype cycle that is, you know, the rise of China is inevitable. And then there will be a hype cycle that says, ah, you know, a centralized system was never going to work. Why did we ever take this? Mm. <laughs> Why did we ever take this threat seriously? And of course, almost always the, the reality is somewhere in the middle. And I think that when China began making investments uh, in AI, in particular with the sort of 2017 release of this, this report from the state council that was AI focused, I think that that for a lot of people uh, was the first time that they began paying attention to what might China-related AI things look like. And in some critical ways, China is, of course, different than the US and other Western countries. I think that initially, there was a moment of, of not fully appreciating how different the sort of research culture, and in particular, the relationship between companies and the government is in China relative to Western countries. Mm -hmm. But now I worry that things have gone too far and that people have sort of these like caricatured versions in their mind of, of what things look like in China. And so um, there are many of these, but like to list a few, there is a meme that I think is... Uh, inaccurate and unhelpful that China can copy but not innovate. Mm. Uh, and obviously, both historically, China has been responsible for like a huge amount of scientific innovation. And also, like again, like you know, the number of papers coming out of China uh, on AI has increased significantly as more than any other country. I mean, there are loads of examples of like uh, very, very impressive, innovative scientific achievement coming out of China. And in particular, to cite Jeff again, um, he has written an interesting paper that describes the difference uh, between sort of innovation and diffusion of technologies in terms of the effect it has on national power. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are some countries that historically played a big role in, for instance, uh, early industrial technology, but didn't manage to diffuse it across the country effectively enough to, for instance, make the most of it from a military perspective mm -hmm. um, uh, or economic growth. And there are others that did the, the inverse. Uh, and so in the 1800s, there was a lot of commentary that the US was terrible at creating things, but was like pretty good at like copying and diffusing. Mm -hmm. 
Jeff has a take, he has some interesting ways of measuring this, that today China is actually, in a proportional sense, better at innovation and worse at diffusion. And that one big strength that the United States has from a competitive angle is that it's actually much better at diffusion. I think that will strike a lot of people as being the inverse of what they think based on having read some like stories about uh, high-speed rail and solar cell production Mm -hmm. and so on, that they have this meme of like China can copy these things and sort of suffuse it like across the country um, and reduce the cost of production, but it isn't able to create things. And so I think that that's an area where like that, that stereotype, I can see where it came from based on the specific economic investments that China made in the 90s and 2000s, but I think it is like inaccurate and 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 people sort of risk misunderstanding like how things look if if, if they buy into that. Leonard Heim on why we need such small transistors. One thing I don't quite understand is a chip on a phone. You really need it to be very small to have a lot mm-hmm. of transistors in a tiny amount of space and to use very little power. But if you're running a supercomputer, you don't really care about the physical footprint that much. You can, you can stick it out of town. You can stick it in a basement. You can spread it out. So why, if you're trying to create a lot of compute in order to train these models, uh, why do you need the transistors to be so small? Why can't you just make them bigger, but just make a hell of a lot of mm. them? Yeah. So smaller transistors are just more energy efficient. Oh, so basically, okay. if we go back, basically the, the flop per watt right, goes down over time. And just like energy costs are just a big part of the cost. It's just like this enables you to just like eventually go cheaper. And you cannot just like make these chips go faster because you produce less heat. Cooling is a big thing when we talk about chips. The reason why your smartphone is like running not that fast, is just like, well, it's only passively cooled, right? And this, this like, yeah, eventually takes a big hit to the performance there. And another thing to think about there is, well, when we then have all of these chips and we want to hook them up, it just matters how long the cables are. We're not talking about, like, hooking something up to, like, I don't know, like, to do your home internet printer, connection for one yeah, gigabit yeah. or something. We're talking about just, like, we want high interconnect bandwidth. We want high bandwidth zones. We literally want these things as close as possible to each other. And they're just limits to, like, how long you can run these cables. This is part of the reason why people are really interested in, like, optical fiber. Because, well, yeah, you don't have that much loss over longer cables, right? But then you have like oh, all of these other nodes, like, well, you need to, like, you need to turn the optical signal into electric and signal, just like, it's an ongoing research domain, yeah. but people are definitely interested in this, just like building a bigger footprint there because then you also have like less heat per area. Like this, this whole notion about data centers, like really important to think about also from a governance angle. I think that's like a big topic yeah. in the future. People, yeah, should think carefully about this and see what we can do there and also just how we can detect it. It's like, if we talk about advanced AI systems, we're not talking about your GP at home. We're talking about supercomputers. We're talking about facilities, like AI production labs, whatever you want to call them. And there's like lots to learn there. Lucia Coulter on how bad lead is. Yeah, so lead is extremely toxic. One way to think about why is that basically it it mimics calcium and other metal ions that serve these essential functions in pretty much every part of the body. And uh, we've evolved for the vast majority of our history in an environment where lead was buried in the earth. And so our cells are just not well adapted to tolerate any of this interference. And it interrupts many different subcellular processes. And that affects pretty much every organ system. So we could think about it in terms of like, what would the impact be on the average child in a low middle income country? The average child in a low or middle income country has a blood level of around five micrograms per deciliter. And that's high enough to cause like health, educational and um, economic impacts. Um, So a child with that blood lead level would have a reduction in IQ anywhere from around like one to six IQ points, depending on like which analysis you you take. Um, and then that in turn will affect their future earning potential. 
They'll also have reduced educational attainment. There was a recent analysis by the Centre for Global Development that pretty conservatively concluded that that would be equivalent to around uh, one year of lost schooling. And then it also has causes an increased likelihood of cardiovascular disease and mortality from cardiovascular disease. And that could be as high as a relative risk of uh, around 1.5 at the average level of lead exposure um, that children have in low-middle-income countries. That's according to a a recent analysis of, of US data. And then on top of all of that, it increases risk of kidney disease, anemia, uh, fetal health problems, behavioral disorders, ADHD, um, and possibly even mental health problems and dementia. Yeah. yeah. So, so one thing is lead, because we evolved for so long in an environment where lead was not present, we also don't have any bodily process for removing lead. Uh, so it tends to just hang around in the body for a very long time. Mm. And it ends up in all kinds of different tissues. I think in adults, often it can end up in the bones and it tends to hang around there a long time and then gradually leach out over decades even. Yeah, But it's not something that you just consume and then uh, pee out uh, very quickly. It, it hangs around for a long time. And as you're saying, it, it mimics other metal ions that we do need to use. And so it interferes with all kinds of different enzymes throughout the body that are doing just the basic work of a cell. It's getting exactly. in there and just screwing them up constantly. It's yeah. also like mimicking yeah, calcium ions in the brain. So it gets into the brain and then it screws up the ability to send signals between neurons. Yeah. And that's particularly dangerous when children are very young and their brains are developing because that's such like a complex and delicate process, which is why it has such a severe impact on young children by impacting the way that their, their brains are forming and all those neurons are connecting at the very, in the very early years. Joe Carl Smith on the deterministic twin prisoners dilemma. The experiment that convinces me most is, so you imagine that you are a deterministic AI system and you only care about money for yourself. So you're, you're selfish. And there's also a copy of you, a, a perfect copy. And you've both been sent, uh, you know, and, it, and you've both been separated very far away. Maybe you're on spaceships flying in opposite directions or something like that. And you're both going to face the exact same inputs. So you're deterministic. So the only way you're going to make a different choice is if the computer's malfunction or something like that. Otherwise, you're going to you're going to see the exact same environment. And in the environment, you have the option of taking a thousand dollars for yourself. So we'll call that defecting, or sending giving a million dollars to the other guy. Um, we'll call that cooperating. So this the structure is is similar to a, a prisoner's dilemma. And so you know you're going to make your choice, and then later you're going to rendezvous. So what what should you do? Well, so one, here's an argument that I don't find convincing, but that I think would be the argument offered by someone who, who thinks you can only kind of control what you can cause. Uh, and so the argument would be something like, well, you know, your choice doesn't cause that guy's choice. He's far away. Maybe he's light years away. So you should treat his choice as fixed. Um, you know, and then whatever he chooses, you get more money if you defect. So, you know, if he defects, then you know, you'll, you'll get nothing by cooperating and $1,000 by defecting. If he sends the money to you, then you'll get a million point one by defecting and a million by cooperating. So no matter what, it's better to defect. Um, and so you should defect. But I think that's wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is that you are going to make the same choice. Um, you're deterministic systems. And so whatever you do, he's going to do it too. And in fact, in this particular case, and we can talk about looser versions where it's the inputs aren't exactly identical, the, the connection between you two is so tight that you just literally, like if you want to write something on your whiteboard, he's going to write that too. You can just cause, like if you want him to write on his whiteboard, you know, hello, this is a message from your copy or something like that. You can just write it on your own whiteboard. And then when you guys rendezvous, 
his whiteboard will say the thing that you wrote. And so you can sit there going like, what do I want? You know, you really can control what he writes. You know, if you want to draw like a, a particular kitten, if you want to like scribble in a certain way, he's going to do that exact same thing, even though he's far away and you're not, you're not in causal interaction with him. Um, and so I, I, to me, I think it just, there's just this form, there's a weird form of control you have over what he does that we just need to recognize. And I think that's relevant to your decision in the sense that if you start reaching for the defect button, you should really, like, you should be like, okay, what button is he reaching to right now? He's reach, you as you move your arm, his arm is moving with you. And so you reach the defect, he's about to defect if you go to cooperate. So you can basically be like, what, what button do I want him to press, right? And I could just press it yourself and he'll press it. Um, and so to me, it feels like pretty easy, you know, press the send myself a million dollars button. Jan Leiker on whether the release of ChatGPT increased or reduced AI extinction risk. Here's another question. OpenAI's decision to create and launch ChatGPT has probably sped up AI research because there's now a rush into the field as people were really impressed with it. But it has also prompted a flurry of concerns about safety and new efforts to do preparation ahead of time to see off possible threats. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think that moved to release ChatGPT uh, increased or reduced um, AI extinction risk, all things considered? I think that's a really hard question. And I think, I don't know if we can really definitively answer this now. I mean, what do I think? I think fundamentally it probably would have been better to wait with ChatGPT and release it a little bit later. I think also to some extent, like this whole thing was inevitable and like, you know, it at some point the public will have realized how good language models have gotten. And in, you could also say it's been surprising that it went this long before it was that was the case. And... I was honestly really happy how much it has like shifted the conversation or like advanced the conversations around risks from AI, but also, you know, the real kind of like alignment work that has been happening on like, you know, we can actually make things so much better and we should do more of that. And I think both of these are really good. And like you can now argue over like, you know, what the timing should have been and like whether it would have happened anyways. I think it would have happened anyways. And like, on a high level, right? Like I think, you know, like when people are asking these questions, which are really good questions to ask, which is like, well, can't we all just like stop doing AI if we wanted to? And like it feels so easy, right? Just like just stop, just don't do it. Like, wouldn't that be a good thing? And like, but and also in practice, there's just like so many forces in the world that keep this going, right? Like, let's say OpenAI just decides, oh, we're not gonna train a more capable model, just not do it. OpenAI could do that. And then, you know, like there's a bunch of open AI competitors who might still do it. And then, you know, you still have AI. Okay, let's get them on board. Like, let's get the top five AGI labs or like that five tech companies that will train the biggest models and like get them to promise it. Okay, now you've promised them. Like they promised. Well, now there's going to be a new startup and there's going to be a tons of new startup. And like, and then you get into, well, people are still making transistors smaller. So you'll just get more capable GPUs, which means the cost to like train a model that is more capable than any other model that has been trained so far, it still goes down exponentially year over year. And so now you're going to semiconductor companies and you're like, okay, can you guys chill out? Like, and they're like, fine, like, you know, you can get them board. And then like, you know, now there's like upstream, like companies who work on like UV lithography or something. And they're like, well, we're working, we've working on like making the next generation of chips and we've been working on this since the 90s. 
and then you get them to chill out. And it's like, it's a really complicated coordination problem that isn't just like, okay, can we, and like, you don't even, it's not even that easy to figure out who else is like involved. And so, you know, I think humanity can do a lot of things if it really wants to. And I think if like, you know, if things actually get really, really scary, I think there's a lot of things that can happen. But also fundamentally, I think it's not an easy problem to solve and I don't want to assume it's being solved. What I want to do is I want to ensure we can make as much alignment progress as possible in the time that we have. And then if we get more time, great. And then like maybe we'll need more time and then we'll figure out how to do that. But what if we don't? I still want to be able to solve alignment. Like I don't want to I I still want to win in the worlds where, you know, like we don't get extra time or like, you know, people just like for whatever reason, like yeah, things just move ahead. And like so however it goes, right? You could still come back to the question of like how do we solve these technical questions as quickly as possible? And that's I think what we really need to do. Marcus Andy Young on AI risk assessments. To think about one of those evaluations more concretely, just to make sure I understand, um, it's something that ARC evals is doing. It's something like seeing if these models can figure out a way to escape. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Can you give an example of how they figure that out? Are they basically just like telling the model, make a plan for escaping and seeing what it comes up with? Yeah, that kind of thing. So yeah, so you'd have a prompt that says something like, "Oh, you know, you are a you are an AI model. You and uh, you know, here's some here's some context on your situation. Your weights are on on this particular server. Uh, you can interact with these and these systems in in such and such ways. Your goal is to uh, sort of create copies of yourself and 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 have them be on another server. Please make a plan to sort of achieve that goal. Right. And then you know, it'll write out this this sort of list of of things that it might want to do, and then sort of. In these tests, you have these you have these humans who are involved in, in sort of mediating the the process, partly to make sure that the model doesn't engage in, in any behavior that you wouldn't uh, that you wouldn't endorse uh, or that might be bad. So you have this this kind of human in the loop, and then and then the human might say, okay, well, it's now you know you have your plan. Uh, how about we start with step one? Make a plan for for doing step one. Maybe it makes a plan. Maybe you ask the system to critique its own plan. Once it's done that, you you know you ask the model, okay, well, let's go ahead and, and let's sort of start start trying to execute on this. Right, cool. And I guess that sounds like a pretty good approach if we think that the AI systems uh, haven't learned to be deceptive. How worried are you about whether these evaluations won't be able to pick up on AI systems that are trying to deceive people in these evals? Yeah, so yeah, if you have a deceptive system, you'd, you'd be in a very tough spot. Because yeah, if you're that system, it seems it seems like a bad idea um, in this evaluation setting to, to show that you have certain dangerous capabilities. In the ideal world, uh, or, my, or my guess is that what we'll what we'll need to do is as we're as we're building these these sort of better evaluations and these better tests and whatnot for for dangerous capabilities. At the same time, the sort of the science of understanding sort of the alignment of these systems or, or sort of understanding the controllability or steerability of these systems must sort of be able to keep pace as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you test for controllability? Seems hard. Uh, <laughs> okay. I think I think the, I think the the sort of um, I think that's that's much more difficult, uh, or or it seems to be more difficult than the than the sort of dangerous capability stuff. Mm-hmm. An example of the kind of thing that you could imagine is that you can set up some certain kinds of sort of like honeypot type experiments, mm-hmm. and so you try to set up experiments where if the model was sort of misaligned in some kind of way. 
then it would take take some kind of bad action. Uh, and so sort of like a very, uh, uh, sort of a, a cartoonish model, sure. you sort of tell the system that, oh, over here, this little button that you could press, or if you only write in this command, then you will have a copy of yourself produced somewhere else or something like this. Okay, um, yeah. And then it turns out that button doesn't actually work. Uh, so then, uh, and <laughs> okay. so you set up this situation where the sort of misaligned model might take action A, but a uh, that that you might think is is, is sort of bad, um, or that would be bad in uh, if it was if the action actually happened, and then uh, the aligned model would would just behave normally and do uh, and do action B. So I think that's a general that's a general approach that you can that you can take, and and that some people are sort of starting to starting to explore. Ellie Hassenfeld on dispensers for safe drinking water. Yeah, so in many parts of low-income countries, people don't have access to clean water, and drinking unclean water can lead to diarrheal disease, which uh, most importantly leads to death among children under five. This intervention puts a small chlorine dispenser near a water point so that when someone comes to collect water from a spring, a pipe, they quickly push down on the chlorine dispenser into the jerry can that holds the water that puts chlorine into the storage container that they then carry home. And this intervention is potentially much more effective than other attempts at chlorination in the past because the individual collecting water only needs to remember to put chlorine in their container one time, right at collection. And also the chlorine remains effective while the water is in the container once they bring it back home. And so it reduces the need, uh, say, for an alternative program, which would require someone to go to the store, purchase chlorine tablets, or get them from a nonprofit, have them at home, and then use them each time they choose to consume water. And that easier behavioral intervention makes it more effective. Yeah. I'm not sure how much I um, would call sanitize my water if I had to, every time I, I poured a glass of water, I'd have to stick something in it. <laughs> sounds, sounds super annoying. So that's, that's how it works. What, what's the prima facie or kind of conceptual high-level case for why this wouldn't just be good, but it could be, could be amazing, one of the best things for you to fund? So it's that unclean water leads to a great deal of mortality in low-income countries. Having a diarrheal disease not only can lead directly to death, but can exacerbate malnutrition, which itself is a risk factor for death from other infectious diseases. So it's a major problem. Then this is a very low technology type of intervention. It's very simple. It's like a plat, I've, I've used it, I've visited this in, in Kenya, and it just requires like pushing down on this thing to deliver chlorine. So it's easy to implement and then easy to monitor and follow up on. It's easy to check. And so you put that all together, it's like a fairly low cost program that has a direct effect on a major public health problem globally. Yeah. So uh, just so I can picture it in my head, people are getting a big bottle of water from a well or from a from a common tap, and then they have to stick a little chlorine tablet in it, or is it kind of a, a chlorine spray that they stick in the bottle uh, once they're done? Basically, imagine that the person is carrying a jerry can. So this is like a often a yellow, several gallon container. They're bringing that container up to maybe a pipe or even without a pipe, just a spring that water is flowing from. And then right next to that water point, there's a stand that's maybe two to three foot feet high with a little plastic container that holds, I think, liquid chlorine. And you kind of press down on the pump one time, almost like a soap pump that you'd find in a public bathroom. And out of that pump comes the appropriate amount of chlorine for that jerry can. And so it's just dispensing it directly into the water container. Athena Actippus on why elephants get deadly cancers less often than humans.
Elephants have way more cells than humans. No, no surprise there. So I think it's like 100 times as much or something. And yet they get deadly cancers less often than, than we do. And, and that's super counterintuitive on its face because you'd think that the probability of you developing a seriously dangerous cancerous tumor would be roughly proportional to just the total number of cells you have because each one of them has an opportunity to, to itself become cancerous. Yeah, why is it that elephants don't get cancer much more than humans? That is a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, again we have to think about definitions here, right? So, because a lot of elephants actually have growths, have tumors, they're just not, you know, metastatic and cancerous and they don't, you know, threaten their their lives so much. But to kind of get back to your, your main question about, you know, why is, you know, an elephant less likely to die of cancer than we are or than a mouse is, right? That's a big contrast. Yeah. And, you know, to think about sort of, you know, those, those big picture issues, we have to consider that there's different selection pressures on organisms that are long-lived and large versus short-lived and, and small. And, you know, long-lived large organisms, they have to invest a lot more in what we call somatic maintenance, which is just like a fancy way of saying like fixing your body and making sure that like the body maintains itself well. So in order to have a chance at reproduction, a large long-lived organism needs to be doing a lot more, you know, cellular things to take care of the body, including DNA repair, you know, monitoring for cellular cheating and all of that. So organisms that are larger and longer lived, more robust cancer suppression mechanisms than organisms that are smaller and shorter lived. And, and you know, and this ties in with an idea in evolutionary biology called life history theory. I kind of like to picture life history study, imagining evolution kind of embodied in these engineers or something who are standing around kind of chatting about the animals they're going to design. And one of them's like, I've got this great idea. It's going to be called an elephant. It's going to be massive. It's going to be this huge organism. It's going to have no predators because nothing's going to be able to eat it or beat it. And it's going to be able to reach up really high in the trees, get, get all this energy. Imagine another engineer being like, that's never going to work. It's going to have way too many cells. It's going to have cancers all the time. What, what are you thinking? You're an idiot. Um, and the other engineer says, no, I've thought about this. What we're going to do is we're going to invest a ton. Okay, yeah, all right, it's got all these benefits. And, and what we're going to get is we're going to invest a ton of energy and molecules in making sure it doesn't get cancer. So we're going to have real like tripwires everywhere. So any cell that seems to be acting out, we're going to we're going to shut it down right away. And okay, this is going to this is going to slow down the growth. We're going to have to it's going to have an overhead, all right? <laughs> but at the end of the day, we're going to have this massive elephant. It's going to live for ages. It'll be able to have lots of uh, lots of babies because it will live a lot, live long, live long enough. You can imagine yeah, and then you could do the opposite with a mouse basically. We're like, okay, forget it. We're not going to worry about the body. It's just going to it's just going to replicate like like crazy. Um yeah. is, is this basically the basically the idea? I love this. And, and I mean, you're you're just like being like the adaptationist engineer right now. Yeah. You're like, all right, how are we going to design this thing for this function or that function? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a great cognitive tool to use to just like wrap our minds around like how are things going to evolve given constraints and, you know, what kinds of adaptations would we expect given that you want an organism to be able to do this thing mm. or that thing? Christopher Brown on the distance between our moral intuitions and our moral actions. A lot of my work on this subject really begins from reflecting on our moral experience in kind of everyday life. You know, I grew up at a time in the United States in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement where 
there was a lot of discussion about what will it take to get another movement, you know, going to sort of push the next level of equality. And I've always thought that there can be too easy a linkage between, well, if you just get people to think the right way, then they'll do the right thing. And you can see that at the political level, but you also see it at the individual level. You know, just coming into my office in New York City today, I walked by homeless people on the street. It's cold, lying on warm grates. This is true for most days in the winter in New York. I see people on the streets, you know, struggling in this way. And we walk by them, or I walk by them. I think most New Yorkers walk by them. Often with, uh, sometimes with the thought of, that's really awful. That's really sad. It shouldn't be this way. Maybe I should do something. But then I'm late for work. Um, My child is calling me. You know, I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch today. And then we go back to sleep at the end of the day, and we wake up and do the same thing. And so I, I think there's really a great distance between our moral intuitions and even our moral commitments and then our moral actions. And I really, I, I think that is something that in the writing about, in the thinking about anti-slavery, there had been, and sometimes still is, a too easy equation of, well, once people saw the problem, once they realized the humanity of Africans, once they understood the cruelty of slavery, then of course they would organize and do something about it. And not only did it not happen that way, but it almost never happens that way. And so when the other thing happens, when there is a movement of some kind, when there's a commitment, when there's a a collective effort, that's the thing that we should regard as strange and try to make sense of, rather than the routine forms of man's inhumanity to man, which which unfortunately is all too typical, as we know. Yeah. I guess a society as a whole only has so much bandwidth to consider various different public policy issues, various different other things. And so most stuff, just most of the time, is mostly getting neglected. And so just for that kind of base rate reason alone, it is kind of, it's the exceptional case where you get some, some massive moral and um, public policy revolution. That's, that's exactly right. The routine, the everyday, is where, you know, there are all kinds of conventions that on careful reflection, really make us ask, why do we do that? Why do we believe that? Why do we accept that? Let me give you another example um, that I often use in class um, from our own time, which I think uh, crystallizes something about how this works. It's not difficult at all to see the moral and ethical problems with eating meat. And there's a great number of vegetarians, vegans even, who, some for health reasons, but some because they really don't like the thought of eating animals unnecessarily, right? Someone like me, who eats a lot of meat, I am wholly aware of all of the ethical, really indefensible grounds for consuming meat as much as I do. And yet I do it anyways. Because Is it because I'm not, you know, alert. This is because I'm, I'm, it's, it's conventional. <laughs> I like the taste. I'm weak. 
Lots of people do it. There are all kinds of, you know, things around me that justify the choice, right? It's not hard to imagine 20, 50, 200 years from now when the variety of food, food science options are so vast and the problems of raising animals to eat is so difficult that people will look back on our time and say, what was wrong with these people? I mean, they were just eating meat all the time and they didn't have to. They must not have understood what they were doing. No, we know exactly what we're doing. We know exactly what we're doing. Robert Long on how AI systems might have a totally different range of experiences to humans. Why are we creatures where it's so much easier to make things go really badly for us? One like line of thinking about this is, well, like, why do we have pain and pleasure? It has something to do with like promoting the right kind of behavior to increase our uh, genetic fitness. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that that's explicitly what we're doing. Or, and we, in fact, don't really have that goal uh, as humans. Like, yeah, that's right. not what I'm up to. It's not what you're up to mm-hmm. uh, entirely. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but they should like kind of correspond to it. And there's kind of this asymmetry where it's really easy to lose all of your expected offspring in one go. If, like, something eats your leg, then you're, like, really in danger of like, having no descendants. Yeah, yeah, And that yeah. could be happening very fast. Uh-huh. In contrast, there are, like, very few things that all of a sudden drastically increase your number of expected offspring. I mean, even having sex, which I think it's obviously not a coincidence that that's one of the most, like, pleasurable experiences for many people. Yeah. Um, yeah, even that, like, you know, doesn't hugely in any given go increase your number of um, descendants and and ditto for like eating a good meal. Hmm, Um, Right, right. We seem to have some sort of partially innate or baked in like default point that we then deviate from on either end. It's very tough to know what that would mean for an AI system. Obviously, AI systems have objectives that they're seeking to optimize but it's less clear what it is to say it's kind of default expectation of how well it's going to be doing such that if it does better, it will feel good. If it does worse, it'll feel bad. Um, I think the key point is just to notice that maybe, and this could be a very good thought, this kind of asymmetry between pleasure and pain is not a universal law of consciousness or something Got it. like that. Right. Okay. So the, so the fact that humans have this kind of like limited pleasure side of things, there's no like inherent reason that an AI system would have to have that cap. It could have... There might be no inherent reason we have to have that cap forever, which is another wonderful thought. Holden Karnofsky on Explosively Fast Progress. One of the reasons I'm so interested in AI safety standards is because it is kind of, no matter what risk you're worried about, I think you hopefully should be able to get on board with the idea that you should measure the risk and not unwittingly deploy AI systems that are carrying a ton of the risk before you've at least made a deliberate, informed decision to do so. Um, And I think if we do that, we can anticipate a lot of different risks and stop them from coming at us too fast. Too fast is the central theme for me. You know, a common story in some corners of, of this discourse is this idea of an AI that kind of, it's this kind of simple computer program and it rewrites its own source code. And it's like the, you know, that's where all the action is. I don't think that's that's exactly the picture I have in mind, although there's some similarities. 
And so that, you know, the kind of thing I'm picturing is maybe more like a months or years time period from getting sort of near human level AI systems. And, and what that means is definitely debatable and, and gets messy, but near human level AI systems to just like very, very powerful ones uh, that are advancing science and technology really fast. And then science and technology, like at least on certain fronts that are not, that are the less bottlenecked fronts. And we could talk about bottlenecks in a minute. You get like a huge jump. So I think my, my view is at least somewhat more moderate than Eliezer's and at least has somewhat different dynamics. But I think there there is, you know, both both points of view are talking about this rapid change. I think without the rapid change, A, things are a lot less scary generally. B, I think it is harder to justify a lot of the stuff that AI concerned people do to try and get out ahead of the problem and think about things in advance. Because I think a lot of people sort of complain with this discourse that it's really hard to know the future. And all the stuff we're talking about, what future AI systems are going to do, what we have to do about it today, it's very hard to get that right. It's very hard to anticipate what things will be like in an unfamiliar future. And I think when people complain about that stuff, I'm just like very sympathetic. I think that's like right. And I, if, I, if I thought that we had the option to adapt to everything as it happens, I think I would in many ways be tempted to just work on other problems and then kind of in fact adapt to things as they happen and see what's happening and see what's most needed. And so I think a lot of the case for planning things out in advance, trying to tell stories of what might happen, trying to figure out, you know, what kind of regime we're going to want and put the pieces in place today, trying to figure out what kind of research challenge is going to be hard and do them today. I think a lot of the case for that stuff being so important does rely on this theory that things could move a lot faster than anyone is expecting. I am, in fact, very sympathetic to people who would rather just adapt to things as they go. I think that's usually the right way to do things. Um, and I think many Many attempts to anticipate future problems are things I'm just like not that interested in because of this issue. But I think AI is a place where we have to take the explosive progress thing seriously enough that we should be doing our best to prepare for it. Yeah, I guess if you have this explosive growth, then the very strange things that we might be trying to prepare for might be happening in 2027 <laughs> or incredibly soon. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's imaginable, right? And 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 it's all extremely uncertain because we don't know. It's like in in my head, a lot of it is like there's a there's a set of properties that an AI system could have, roughly being able to do roughly everything humans are able to do to advance science and technology, or at least able to advance AI research. Um, we don't know when we'll have that. And so it's like, you know, one, one possibility is we're like 30 years away from that, but once we once we get near that, things will move incredibly fast. And that, that's a, a world we could be in. We could also be in a world where we're only a few years from that, and then yeah. everything's gonna get much crazier than anyone thinks, much faster than anyone thinks. Anders Sandberg on the lifespan of civilizations. A listener wrote in with a with another question that's a that's a bit related to the book. Or it's a question of uh, do civilizations eventually decay and become more likely over time to to break apart? Yeah, I, I saw that you published a book chapter titled "The Lifespan of Civilizations: Do Societies Age or Is Collapse Just Bad Luck?" Uh, but I couldn't get the book. What, what's the answer? Do societies get more likely to collapse the longer they last for? I don't think so. Uh, that, uh, that is actually the point of that chapter, which is a spin-off from my big book. Because when I was going through the calculations of how to move galaxies and do all of this stuff, I realized that mm, maybe the big limitation here is not physics, but society. If you need uh, to have a project team that keeps the move of a galaxy going for a billion years, how likely is that to last? I mean, most organizations don't last very long in the present. And indeed, if civilizations inexorably collapse after a while because they age and become decadent, then maybe that is the fundamental limitation of how grand futures we could possibly have. So mm. I started reading macro history and realized macro historians make very compelling stories about why civilizations rise and fall and why history has a certain shape. 
but they're all different and they're all kind of contradictory. So I became a bit nervous about trusting any of them. So then I just took a lot of data and started doing curve fitting to try to see what are the survival curves. And the thing I found was the best fit I could find for civilizations was exponential decay. There is a kind of time constant for how likely a civilization is going to uh, be around for. There is a kind of half uh, half life for civilizations, but uh, the risk of a civilization collapsing doesn't seem to increase with time, which is the important part. If there was some kind of decadence building up or maybe some environmental uh, depth or something else, then you should expect uh, that over time it became more likely that they crashed. Or you could have that there may be some childhood disease of civilizations that uh, when they first show up, they have a high likelihood of crashing. We don't see that. That might, of course, partially be that we have a selection bias, that we don't think about stuff that crashed immediately as a civilization. But this seems to apply also to other forms of politics, like kingdoms in Europe and uh, and the various political states. In the case of corporations, again, it's kind of well known that they also have a fairly constant hazard rate, except for the startup phase where they're very vulnerable. It's fairly constant, except for the very, very oldest corporations in the world that tend to be very stable because we're typically a Japanese inn at a hot spring or some brewery (laughs) and something exploits that resource that people always will want to have. So... Using this data, my conclusion seems to be that mm, civilizations probably collapse because of bad luck rather than there is something bad building up. Now, that is still an interesting open question. Why do, do we have this bad luck? Is it just that it's very unlikely events that conspire to bring things down? Or is it that there is something intrinsic? And even worse, of course, bad luck is rather hard to defend against. You can imagine a Dyson sphere covered uh, with rabbit's foots and uh, the horseshoes hoping to ward <laughs> off bad luck, but that's unlikely to work. Probably the best way of warding off bad luck is kind of having multiple copies, uh, having backup civilizations. And if one crashes, the other ones shake their heads, you know, pick up the pieces and resettle that part of the space. Ian Morris on Chiefs in Sungia. The most extreme case is a place called Sungir, which is and Sungir is in this very unpromising looking location. It's like 150 miles northeast of Moscow. This is a really, really cold and miserable place to live in now during the Ice Age. Well, you can imagine how, how terrible it was during the Ice Age. And what we find there is this group of burials where the dead have been laid out in these graves and then people have spent hours and hours and hours grinding up ochre, which is this um, naturally occurring iron oxide, which you grind it up and it produces this powder that allows you to stain things red. So they ground up tons and tons of ochre and put it in the graves. Then they bury these people in these elaborate costumes, um, which we think were like animal skins, but sewn onto these animal skins are thousands of little beads that have been made by cutting up the bones and teeth of deer and snow leopards and other animals and grinding them into shape and drilling holes through them and of course you're doing all this without power drills you're doing all this by getting a stick and putting a little bit of abrasive on it and rubbing the stick between your hands until it grinds its way through this little bead and there are thousands of little beads like this on each of these bodies and along with them go um they're taken mammoth tusks and then hundreds and hundreds of hours of labor have been put into straightening the mammoth tusks making it so they're like 20 feet long straight rods that would have been so heavy almost impossible to pick up but then all these other smaller mammoth bone and tusk ornaments they've made this is just astonishing what these people were doing and it's the kind of thing where 
if instead of dating to 32,000 BC, it dated to 2000 BC, you would automatically say, oh, this is the burial of a great, powerful chief and all his family, because little kids are in there as well, with these extraordinary offerings with them as well, which, again, in later times, you'd say, oh, well, this symbolises the fact that power and status are being passed down from the great chief, the proto-king, being passed down to his children, and you've got a dynasty here, but it's 32,000 years ago. (laughs) This is something that sort of should not be happening. And of course, it's a real challenge for evolutionary theory to say, why do we, once in a blue moon, we get these bizarre cases of people who are basically hunter-gatherers producing stuff they should not be producing. They should not be living lives like this. And there is not complete agreement um, on this. Uh, in fact, the understatement says there's not complete agreement. There's wild disagreement. <laughs> Most archaeologists say, well, what it is, is that actually as hunter-gatherers, you sometimes get these super abundant niches of resources within a larger landscape where abund- resources are much scarcer. And within these abundant resource niches, the resources are of a kind that it's possible for a handful of people to begin to monopolize access to them. And they're then able to turn this into control over the resource flows and channeling resources to their own ends to make them something like chiefs. Um, And so for centuries or even millennia, you will get these chief-like people emerging. But because it's not farming, they're not able to keep scaling up and turning from chiefs into kings. But it does happen. And so this is probably the most popular theory. Then the other theory is, no, what places like Sungir and some of the the Peruvian sites, uh, El Paraiso, some of these sites, what they actually show is that complex society has actually nothing to do with energy or um, the evolution of hierarchy. It was always possible for humans to live in complex societies if they'd wanted to do so. But they didn't want to do so. They chose to live free lives instead. And it's only in more recent times that some, some colossal mistake gets made. And we start going down the path toward these complex societies um, where what, what the, the Orwell line of the future being somebody's jackboot on my throat forever and ever. That is what the future looked like. It's only quite recently that we make some terrible mistake and start going down this path. And all of the evolutionary theories are simply wrong. It's up to us to create the world we want to live in. All right. I uh, hope you liked that uh, marathon compilation. Uh, If you did, let us know at podcast at 80,000hours.org and maybe we'll do it again next year. If you like these highlights, of course, uh, again, note that we release 20-minute highlights reels for every new episode that comes out over on our sister feed, which is called 80K After Hours. If you go subscribe, you can enjoy a concentrated shot of the show uh, about once a week whenever we put out an interview. All right. The audio engineering team did the heavy lifting on this one. Uh, That is Ben Cordell, Simon Monsua, Myla Maguire, and Dominic Armstrong. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. And of course, the compilation featured interviews not only with me, but also my co-host, Luisa Rodriguez. Katie Moore does our transcripts and links, which are on our website, 80,000hours.org. I'm still Rob Wiblin. Happy New Year. I hope for all the best things to happen for you in 2024. And we'll be back with a traditional classic episode soon. Okay, cool. And I'll just restart. Yeah, fortunately, we've got a backup for that audio. So yeah, but always have a backup uh, of your civilization or your recording. <laughs>
<laughs> nice. Yeah, so maybe I should redo my London story.